Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke 10. And I am excited about this evening's sermon. Uh, we are in... We are going to cover one of my favorite verses in the Bible tonight. And it's one of my favorites uh, for the reason of its, if I may use the word profundity, because it's profound. Uh, this verse, many years ago, I was reading and it just hit me. And it hit me hard. And it, I marveled at what Jesus is saying here. And I've preached on it to some degree before, but I am excited to preach on it again tonight to preach on it as we walk through Luke uh, 10 and to glean the context. Uh, today is a day of perspective. I, I, I title this uh, sermon, Resetting Our Perspective. It's a day of perspective. This morning we sought to gain perspective on pride and on not not being willing to be admonished through pride. Uh, we sought perspective on leaders, and we sought perspective on following, and we gleaned on that perspective. And there's going to be a perspective reset that Jesus is going to present this evening to the men that he had commissioned. Recall last week, Jesus had sent forth his 70 and he had commissioned them to go. And when they come back, they're excited. And Jesus is going to give them a reset of their perspective on exactly what it is that they are excited about. As with all things, uh, a perspective reset is a matter of faith. And faith is exercised through Humble submission. So as we set ourselves upon uh, perhaps resetting in our own hearts the same perspective that uh, is reset in the disciples' hearts throughout our passage tonight, let's prepare our hearts for that and ask the Lord if there's any part of this that we might need for our own hearts and then be ready to assume it upon ourselves. We pick up in verse 17. Of Luke 10. And the Bible says this. And the 70 returned again with joy. Saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Just as with the commission of the 12, the text skips the events that actually take place during the commission of the 70. With the 12 in Luke 9, Jesus sent them forth. And then we read of them going and we read of them coming back. We read of nothing in between. We read nothing of the actual time that they spent ministering. The same is the case with the 70. Jesus sends them out. He commissions them. We read the commission. We read nothing of the events that take place during the ministry of the 70. And we only read of when they return. And we pick up at the end of their commission, returning to Jesus with Joy, And notice the source of their excitement. They had been healing the sick. They had been preaching the gospel. And they had even been casting out devils. And it is this particular privilege that they seem to be most excited about. That even the devils are subject unto them. And notice that they are careful to give credit where credit is due. They say, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through 
thy name. They say specifically that it is through Christ's name that they have this power. They're not attempting to ascribe the power unto themselves. They're not, they didn't come back and say, Lord, guess what we can do now? Your ministry is obsolete because we can do this too. They said nothing of the sort. Uh, they're not attempting to praise themselves at the expense of Christ. They, they have, in, in one sense, a very right reaction here. They're rejoicing in the power of God and the wonders which they were able to perform through Him. This might be the very same type of excitement which you and I feel when we have the privilege of being used by God in some unique way or in some unique ministry. You come back from having shared the gospel, someone accepted Christ, or you come back from having had a tremendously fruitful conversation with a believer or or, uh, bringing someone to a better knowledge of the Lord and you just sit back and you say, wow, look what God was able to do through me. Look at the power that I had through the name of Christ to minister unto the needs of others and you rejoice. And indeed, in their rejoicing, I see all that is right and wholesome as far as joy in ministry. But notice Jesus' response to them. And this is the verse that is so profound in verse 18. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. What an interesting response. Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. We healed the sick. We caused the lame to walk. We preached the gospel. The devils were subject unto us. We cast out devils. And Jesus says, I was there. I was there the day Satan fell from heaven. I watched as he as lightning fell from heaven. In the excitement that the disciples had over the ministry that God had given to them, the power that God had given to them, Jesus saw something. And he saw something that he had seen before in someone else. He saw on the day that the exalted cherub was cast down to earth because in him was found iniquity. And as he speaks of the spirit of the disciples... You might imagine that they would go from elation, excitement, to a bit of confusion, and then maybe to gravity. Thinking about Jesus, as Jesus thinks back on the day when Lucifer fell from heaven. What had their response and excitement to do with Satan's fall? What was it? about their their coming back, about their excitement, about their their enthusiasm over God's power in them, about the devils being subject unto them in Christ's name. What was it about that excitement and enthusiasm that caused Jesus to look at them and say, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. We're going to come back to this more in, in, in our in our first application point as far as getting back to the that event 
as we consider it. But we are going to continue in our context first. And in verses 19 and 20, we continue as we read this. Uh, Jesus is still talking. He said, behold, and this is going to give us some insight. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this rejoice, not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Jesus admits to them that indeed he had given them this power through his name. He had given them power over the common dangers and pitfalls of the created order. He had given them power over scorpions, over serpents, so that nothing would harm them, so that no serpent would bite them and kill them. They, they were divinely protected by God as they went out to do this ministry. Not only were they divinely protected, but do you remember his commission? Take no script, take no shoes, take no cloak. Take no staff. The commission, they were not only divinely protected, but they were divinely provided for as well, right? They were divinely protected and they were divinely provided for. He had given them everything that they needed to go and do the ministry that he had called them to. Then he also, he admits that he had given them power over the enemy. The spirit realm is that against which we wrestle. We know that from Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, right? That we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and um, rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. So that Jesus says, I have given you power over all of these things and nothing shall by any means hurt you. The enemy, that would be spiritual enemies. Uh, serpents and scorpions, that would be physical enemies. So that nothing would hurt them. But Jesus says, nevertheless, notwithstanding, it is not this that you are to rejoice in. If there is something to rejoice in, it is not to be that the spirits have been made subject unto you. Jesus is looking at them saying, I need you to reset your perspective. Gain some perspective on what you have just done through my name. The power that is given unto you in the name of Christ is great and is powerful and is wonderful. But this is little more than a gift. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God's power through you. The subjection of the enemy to the disciples, it was not their success. Much to the contrary, they were simply basking in the afterglow of the power of God. They had been blessed with to be the conduits through which divine power could flow. We sang it this morning, channels only, blessed master. But with all thy wonders power flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. Jesus was looking at them and saying, you need to remember that you were nothing but the channel through which my power flowed. And this is so important. Don't rejoice that you have been given power, but rather rejoice that you are among the few who have believed and so have been recipients of God's divine Grace, Rejoice alone in one thing. Rejoice alone in that your name is written in the book of life. Rejoice alone that you're going to be in heaven one day. Now remember that this is a warning. Because in the attitude of the disciples, Jesus saw the same seed of pride, the seed of self-aggrandizement that brought Lucifer and caused him to fall from heaven. As I mentioned, we'll consider that in its fullest detail in our application. 
But let's continue on in the text. The Bible says in verse 21, In that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. In that same hour, Jesus then prays this prayer, thanking the Father of heaven and earth, that these things... That even this perspective, that this perspective, that the purpose of the Christian life is not to gain power, that the blessing of the Christian life is not the power, it's the grace that enables the power. Thank you, Father of heaven and earth, that these things have been given, that we can understand this, that this gift has been given that these things have been hid from the wise and prudent but only revealed instead revealed unto babes for so jesus said it seemed good according to the will of the father that those who would receive eternal riches would only do so as they just like we talked about this morning humbled themselves rejected the tendency of man toward pride and toward self-sufficiency and accepted the gift of grace through jesus christ alone Jesus acknowledges that God's way is best, though it seems, if I may use the word counterintuitive, to the mind of man. From the perspective of mankind, everything must be fought for. From the perspective of mankind, more power means better. It's given to the strongest and to the smartest and to the best. Survival of the fittest. Dominance of the strong. You're the best if you're the strongest. Might makes right. This is the way man thinks. But so it is not among the blessed of God. So it is not within the context of God's great plan. In God's great plan, it is the one who is willing to yield who wins. In God's great plan, it is the humble who are exalted. We spoke of that this morning. And in order to find God's way, man must forget everything that sin naturally instills in him. And so in doing so, trust the paradox of faith that in humbling ourselves before God, that God will do for us what we refuse to do for ourselves, what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus then takes the next step, connecting the Father's divine will to Christ's divine purpose in verse 22. He says, All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. Jesus says that the Father has committed all authority unto the Son. It is within the hand of the Son, through his soon-to-be sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection, that the Father has thus given to the Son all authority, both in heaven and upon earth. To this end, all power over both physical and spiritual is in the hand of Christ. Under Christ has been given authority over the material world. Under Christ has been given authority over the spiritual world. It was in this authority that the disciples went forth, that they were spared from the power of the scorpions, of the serpents, that they were spared from the power of the spiritual enemy that was against them. And unto all authority over eternal life, eternal death, all of this was given unto Christ. This understanding of identity, Jesus says, is then given only to a few. 
It is given to the Father to know the Son. It is given to the Son to know the Father. And then it is given by God's sovereign will to the Son to give, to reveal Himself and His Father to all whom the Son wills. In other words, the Son holds exclusive rights by the will of the Father over who it is that receives eternal life and that receives the knowledge of God the Father and God the Son. And who are these ones unto whom Jesus will reveal himself as authority? Well, to all of those who will receive him. To all of those who will receive his identity. To all of those who will accept him as their Savior. To all of those who will humble themselves, not as Satan, exalting himself for the very very abilities that God had given unto him. But rather those who will receive the authority of Christ as babes, not as the wise and the prudent, but as the humble willing to accept that which they cannot understand by faith, being fully persuaded that all which they cannot grasp and all which they have no power to control is yet in the power of the one who created us and who has redeemed us. Jesus then turned to his disciples, presumably to the 70 that he had commissioned and also probably to the 12 who were there and said unto them in verses 23 and 24, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. Jesus tells them that their eyes are blessed, that they have been the recipients of blessings and privileges which many a prophet and a king had desired to see. Many a dozen generations have longed to see the day when Messiah would reveal the unseen God to the world. Men of a dozen generations have longed to hear the word of God in flesh spoken as one having authority. And yet all of those men could only dream and wonder of the day. All Enoch could do was dream and wonder at the day when God would take on flesh. All Noah could do was imagine the one who made provision for him and his family to be spared the judgment of the flood. All Abraham could do was to visualize what it would be like to sit at the feet of Messiah and to hear him espouse God's word. All Moses could do was to marvel at the grace of the Messiah who had come to deliver a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people. All David could do was dream of the day when his posterity would usher in an everlasting kingdom and defeat all of the enemies of Israel. And these 70 and those 12 simple men of Galilee and Judea were eyewitnesses to the glory of Christ. And not only so, but they shared in that glory through His name. They shared in that power through His name. They received the power to heal the sick. They received the power to do miracles. They received the power to cast out demons. And they received the power to effectively deliver and declare the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so they were blessed. And so they should rejoice. 
but not in the power itself. For indeed, as I mentioned, the power is just an afterglow of the blessing. The power is just a symptom of the blessing. The blessing was that their names were written in the book of life. The blessing was that they as babes had humbled themselves before the Savior and so received eternal life. The blessing was that through the one who spoke unto them, they would be forever reconciled unto the Father and have eternal life through Christ's name. That was the blessing. The power, that's the side effect. That's the afterglow. So much to talk about. Let's dig into our application this evening. The first point that I would like to make as we go back to this profound phrase where Jesus says, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Point number one this evening, be careful that the blessings of spiritual power don't become the seeds of spiritual failure. Be careful that the blessings of spiritual power don't become the seeds of spiritual failure. The 70 return rejoicing in the power which Christ had given unto them. And perhaps as they come, Jesus is excited and he's happy, but at the same time, perhaps his eyes soften a little bit. And then they took upon themselves a sorrowful thoughtfulness. As he thought back to that day, at some point, probably fairly soon after the six days of creation when all was created and God said it is good. When Lucifer first considered the power he had of God and rejoiced in the power rather than in the God behind the power. Ezekiel describes Satan under the name the king of Tyrus. We talked about it, uh, I think it was last week. In Ezekiel 28, and in it we read this. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. That would be Lucifer in this context. And say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and thy pipes, that would mean his voice, was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. And I have set thee so. I made you this. I made you beautiful. I made your voice beautiful. I made you powerful. I made you authoritative, God says. So thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By God's declaration, this anointed cherub was perfect. In his creation. He was beautiful. He was powerful. He was authoritative. And all of his ways were perfect. Until there came a day. That iniquity was found in him. Verse 17 tells us what happened. What happened on the day that Lucifer fell? What iniquity was found in in, in him? Ezekiel 28 verse 17. Thine heart was lifted up. Because of thine beauty. 
Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. May I tell you what happened? On that day, the blessing of the spiritual power that Lucifer had been given became a seed that blossomed unto spiritual failure. It was the very blessings of God that gave way to the pride that caused iniquity to be found in Lucifer and so to be cast down out of heaven as lightning, Jesus says, and so to take on the name Satan, the accuser. We gather more insight from a second passage of scripture in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Do you see the correlation between Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14? Uh, Lucifer is in heaven. He was made in perfection. One day he saw the perfection and he said, I am beautiful. I am powerful. I am great. And then Isaiah 14, therefore I will exalt myself above God. And Jesus says, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Lucifer was lifted up in pride because of his beauty. He decided that he the creation was in fact greater than his creator. He exalted himself above God and he sought to sit upon the throne of God. And this is the day that Jesus was thinking about at the moment the disciples returned. They rejoiced in the power which God had given unto them so that even the devils were subject unto them. And Jesus' response was, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. He says, I've seen this before. It leads to dangerous waters and I need to warn you. Don't rejoice in the things that which God has graced you with to serve him. As if they come from you. Don't rejoice in the results of the grace. That is the power of God. Result in the grace itself. Not the gift by which the grace. By, by, by grace. Not the, the gift that came in grace. But the grace which gave the gift. Rejoice in that. And so it is. Brothers and sisters in Christ. That we must be careful. I hope and pray that God has used you to do great works in his name. I pray that this church would always be filled with men and women who are experiencing the grace of God unto great spiritual power and provision and blessing. I pray that this church would find victory over the enemy through prayer and through purity of life. I pray that this church would hold the line of truth even in a crooked and perverse nation. I pray that the power of God would flow through us by means of the fruit of the Spirit bearing out in our lives. But to whatever degree this power is and to whatever degree this power might be in us let us rejoice not in the power not in the effectiveness but in the grace by which we have been given the power 
Let us delight not in the victories themselves, but in the God that has given us the grace whereby our eyes have seen his victories through us. And let this be a warning to us. That even the very power of God in you, manifest by your obedience and submission, can become the source by which you are tempted to exalt yourself above God. And if I may say it this way, Jesus had commissioned the 70 to go. Excuse me. If you want to see the best examples of this, look toward ministers. Look towards men who once had effective ministries and decided that the power was what they were going to rejoice in rather than the God behind the power. And then they went off on their own and they went outside of sound doctrine and they began to create their own kingdom. They began to forge their own ministries in their name rather than in Christ's name. And you can always see it because the fruit of their ministry becomes disastrous. The fruit of their ministry becomes carnality. That's what we're talking about. Men who once had the power of God upon their lives, but instead of rejoicing at the grace of God that had given the power, they rejoiced in the power itself. And they fell. Through this seed of failure that was sown by rejoicing in spiritual power. Little can any man imagine a time when the grace of God bestowed upon us becomes so twisted in our minds that we convince ourselves of the superiority of our knowledge above God's, of our power above God's, of our plan above God's. But it has happened before and has happened to far better men and women than you and I. And the warning of the scripture is that it will happen again. And so our guard must be up. Lest the grace of God in our lives become in us the very source of thinking that we don't need God anymore. And so lift ourselves up against God. And this leads us to our second point. First, be careful that the blessings of spiritual power don't become the seeds of spiritual failure. Second, rejoice in this. Rejoice in this. That your name is written. In the book of life. When we assume the proper perspective of this life, which we as believers lead, it lends us to one primary rejoicing. When we allow our perspective to be reset by the teaching of Jesus Christ so that we rejoice in, in, in the right things, it leads us to rejoice in this right thing. So that as we strive to serve the Lord, as His power is mighty through us unto the salvation of souls, as the Spirit guides us to bless and comfort the innocent and the hurting, as the Word of God transforms men and women from the inside out and changes future generations of families, each of these circumstances should draw our hearts back to a deep and genuine rejoicing that we, like the many others whose in whose lives the power of God is manifest, that we are likewise undeserving recipients of God's grace. In the Matthew commission of the twelve disciples, Jesus told them to minister in this manner. Matthew chapter 10 verse 8. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. And then he uses this phrase. He says, freely ye have received 
freely give. I think sometimes we as believers act in our ministries as if the power of God in our lives is something that we have earned and carefully collected over the course of time. So that when we minister, we're hesitant to freely distribute of the grace that we have received. Or for that manner, we think that it is our right to selectively distribute to others that which cost us nothing. And so it is, if we can imagine this, if we can manage this perspective, if we can adjust our hearts and minds so that our genuine rejoicing is not in the results of God's work through us, but rather in the source of God's work through us, then we can guard ourselves against the danger of pride, which has seen far greater men and women than you or I cast down into spiritual failure. Take special note. Jesus is not explicitly rebuking them here as much as he's warning them. He's not telling them they shouldn't be happy. But he is helping them to readjust their perspective and remember to keep the main thing the main thing. Not to rejoice in the effect of the power. Certainly not to rejoice in the power itself but rather to rejoice in the source of the power. The freely given grace of God, which saw fit to bless them with the privilege of ministry, so too, brethren, let us rejoice, not directly in the privilege which our relationship of Christ affords us, and the effectual power which works through us unto the change of the lives of others, but rather let us rejoice that God has graced us with a relationship with Christ at all. Let us rejoice that God's power had once worked through someone else unto our redemption. And then as we have freely received of the blessings of God's grace, let us freely give and humbly give to others. Point number one. Be careful that the blessings of spiritual power don't become the seeds of spiritual failure. Point number two, rejoice in this, that your name is written in the book of life. Point number three, God's will was committed to Christ and through Christ committed to you and I. Last week we spent our time in Luke 10 focusing upon the commission of the 70. Jesus teaches in verse 22 that all things were delivered to him of the Father. And Jesus focuses in spe- uh, specifically on the knowledge of the identity and character of the Father and the Son. Jesus says that this knowledge of the identity of the Father was committed to the Son and the knowledge of the identity of the Son was committed unto the Father and unto whom the Son would reveal him. Now, let us just state plainly here that Jesus' statement does not imply the concepts that we would call today limited atonement or unconditional election. Yes, Jesus says that the only people who can become uh, thriving recipients of the knowledge of the Father and of the Son are those who will have that revealed unto them by the Son. But to take it one step further and say then, so only certain people are ever 
given the chance to have this knowledge is a non sequitur. It does not follow. To say that because only certain people will receive the knowledge, that only certain people have the chance to receive the knowledge is not, it's, it's, it's a fallacy. It's fallacious. It, it, it's an assumption. It's not anything that the Bible has to say explicitly. So let's walk through this concept together. Jesus tells us that only he who, unto whom the Son reveals will know the Father. Who can receive this knowledge is one question. Who does receive this knowledge is the second question. Jesus answers for us the second question. Who can receive the knowledge? Who will receive the knowledge? Excuse me, not, not who can, who does. Who does receive the knowledge? Who will receive the knowledge? Well, Jesus answers that one. Only those whom I choose. Now we need to figure out how Jesus chooses. But that doesn't answer the question of who can receive the knowledge. They are not one and the same. So the first question we ask, who can know the Father and the Son? Well, let's just let the scriptures handle this one for us. John 7.37 says this, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come after me and drink. If any man thirst, let him come after me and drink. Revelation twenty two seventeen, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst, Come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. So this seems, I don't know, as I read this, it seems like it sounds like a pretty open invitation. A pretty open invitation to anyone who would desire And so then, uh, is that what we're talking about here? Are we talking about an open invitation? You say, well, pastor, sure, if any man thirsts, let him come after me. But who's to say that that all men are going to thirst? Who's to say that God can't make only certain men thirst? Who's to say that God will only draw certain men unto him and that those men will become thirsty and then those men who become thirsty will inevitably drink? By the way, that's... The concept of unconditional election. That's the concept that is often, or excuse me, irresistible grace, I guess would be more that idea, right? It's the concept of irresistible grace. So who is it that's drawn to Christ? Who is it that is given some degree of thirst? Well, John 12 helps us with this. Verse 32, Jesus says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. And Jesus would also say this in John 16, 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So then are we saying that the offer of eternal life and the provision for eternal life has been secured for all men? So that we can rightly say that every person on earth who has ever lived can know the Father through the Son? Yes. We are saying that, but we're only saying that because that's what the Bible teaches. And as I mentioned this, of course, the 
idea that I am contending against here that's found pervasive throughout Christian circles is Calvinism. I gave you three of the points of the typical five points of Calvinism given in the acrostic tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And three of those concepts, limited atonement, unconditional election, irresistible grace, are refuted by what I just shared with you. The other two are, depending on how they're defined, all of these are defined a certain way. All, and, and, and some people will say, well, pastor, yeah, I, I get that. I'm not there. I'm a two-point Calvinist or I'm a three-point Calvinist. If you look at how they actually define their points, they are all 100% codependent. You cannot be anything but a five-point Calvinist or a no-point Calvinist if you define the points the way a Calvinist does. I could take a couple of these those points in Tulip and I could redefine them, particularly the two I haven't mentioned, total depravity and perseverance of the saints. I can redefine them and make them doctrinal, but not how a five-point Calvinist espouses them. We do not believe Calvinism is sound doctrine at this church, and we do not believe it because the Bible refutes it. And the most clear verse, particularly as we consider the idea of limited atonement, as we consider this idea that salvation is freely given unto all who will receive it, that all men are drawn unto Christ, that all men have the opportunity, that the Spirit of God is busy about the work of convincing all men of sin so that anybody who will come may receive of the waters of life freely, is First John 2, verses... 1 and 2, where John writes this, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation, that word meaning to appease the wrath of God, for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you know what this verse irrefutably says? This verse irrefutably says that Jesus Christ has appeased the wrath of God for sin for the whole world. Not for the elect, for the whole world. Sounds pretty inclusive to me. But the next question is far more important. Who can know the Father and the Son? The offer is freely available to all men. That's why we need to be out telling people. Because there's not a person that you will walk out the doors of this church and there's not a person on the streets who is unable to receive the grace of God. They need to hear. But the next question is this then. Who does know the Father and the Son? Who will know the Father and the Son? The right and power to know God is given only to those who meet a standard. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I gave you 16 there. I wrote the reference for 17 and 18. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name 
of the only begotten Son of God. Who does know the Father and the Son? Who will be with Him one day? What is the standard? The standard is to accept by faith the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your salvation. It is to recognize that you're a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, that Jesus Christ did it on the cross, that He paid the penalty, that He is the propitiation for your sin, that He has appeased the wrath of God on your behalf, and to, to accept that free gift that is given to you. The Bible says, Jesus said, if I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is in the world convicting men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And every person who, who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is working in him to convince him that he needs this. But the only ones who will become recipients of it are those unto whom Jesus will allow in. And Jesus says, I will only allow in those who accept the gift of salvation, who believe on me. There are many thirsty men, but only those who take of the waters of life, which have been freely given, will have that thirst quenched. All of this to establish, once again, that Jesus is not attempting here to teach that only certain people can go to heaven, chosen at the whim of God. But rather, he's teaching that only certain people will go to heaven and that Jesus Christ has the authority to determine who that will be. And Jesus Christ, we know, has made the condition belief alone. Now, we know, we've talked about it, that belief does not just mean mental assent. It does not just mean I know that Jesus is Savior. It does not just mean I know Jesus died on the cross. Belief is not committing my life unto the Lord. Belief is not repenting of sins. That is not, none of that is belief. Belief is when I invest my whole heart into the reality that Jesus alone can save me. It is not being a Jesus fan, a fan, but rather being a Jesus follower. It is putting all of my eggs in his basket. It is investing my eternity in the reality of Jesus' atoning work on the cross. And so Jesus says that's the condition. The Father's condition was perfection under the law. You couldn't meet it. So I came to meet his, his condition... And then when I met his condition, me speaking for Christ, of course, when Christ met his condition, then the conditional, the, the, the authority to make the condition was transferred to Christ. And Christ's condition is belief alone. And those who receive this gift freely offered to them by grace will go to heaven. And so now, God's knowledge is committed to Christ, and through Christ, by God's grace, the people in this room, most of you at least, have accepted that. If you've not, if you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have not received that gift freely, would you make tonight the night? But if you have, then Jesus has committed the knowledge of the Father and the Son to you. Isn't that exciting? That you have been given the blessing of having this knowledge committed to you. And so Jesus tells his disciples in John 20, 21. Then said Jesus unto them, peace be unto you. As my father hath sent me, even so send I you. What are you going to do with the knowledge you've been given? 
It's been given unto you freely by the will of the Son of God, by the will of the Father. It seemed good in God's sight to reveal these things unto babes, and you have humbled yourself as a child and received it with humility. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Now take the grace, go out into a world for whom Christ died, and tell them the great things that God has done for them. Point number four this evening. First, be careful that the blessings of spiritual power don't become the seeds of spiritual failure. Second, rejoice in this that your name is written in the book of life. Third, God's knowledge was committed to Christ and through Christ committed to you and I. Fourth, remember this. It is good in God's sight for men to enter the book of life, for their names to be written in the book of life through humility and faith, not pride and capacity or pride and capability. We talk about those unto whom salvation is given. We've talked about it a few times over the past chapters of Luke. The lower you see yourself, the closer you are to seeing reality. Remember that the exalted are based, as we spoke of this morning. Remember that the blessed are the poor in spirit. We could say it every week and it wouldn't be enough. Because there are 1,000 flesh-driven reasons for us to convince ourselves that we are somebody or something more than we actually are. But by the design of the Almighty God, blessing is given to the humble and to the faithful. We don't have to understand it. We don't even need to like it. It's the design of God, and it's ours to identify with it and to align with it or to reject it and to suffer the consequences. It's like gravity. I don't have to understand it, and I don't have to like it. Stepping on the scale, I don't like gravity. But I must identify it and align with it. I can say, I don't like gravity, so I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist, and and that's going to work out one of two ways for me. I can say, I don't like gravity, so I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist, and I can, number one, be forced to live hypocritically. Saying that I don't believe gravity exists, but actually functioning within the bounds of the gravity I say doesn't exist. Or... I can reject gravity altogether and do things that contradict gravity ending in my inevitable destruction. Those are the only two options because gravity exists. I can say that God's design doesn't exist. And if I say God's design doesn't exist, and by the way, the world around you that says God doesn't exist or say that salvation isn't by grace through faith, they are living under one of these two as well. They are either forced into hypocrisy, living under the design of God while denying the design of God, or they are actually resisting the design of God, which is leading to inevitable destruction of culture and society and individuals. So we have those that pretend like God doesn't exist, but align with it through things such as marriage and gender and morality and truthfulness and integrity. And they say, no, God doesn't exist, but I'm aligning myself with all of these traits that by, by which there's a natural blessing. And so they're living hypocritically under God's blessings, under God's design. Or they reject it altogether. And we're seeing far more of that today, right? Through the rejection of marriage, through the rejection of gender through the rejection of gender roles, through the rejection of integrity, and it's leading to destruction. There's really no other options. So too, Jesus says that God has hid the truths of the knowledge of God from the wise and the prudent, having given it only to the babes in Christ. The babes in faith. Why? Because so it seemed good in God's sight. 
One last point this evening, and then we'll be finished. First, be careful that the blessings of spiritual power don't become the seeds of spiritual failure. Second, rejoice in this, that your name is written in the book of life. Third, God's knowledge was committed to Christ and through Christ committed to you and I. Fourth, remember this. It is good in God's sight for men to enter the book of life through humility and faith, not pride and capability or capacity. Fifth and finally, can we end on just a a nice note of thoughtfulness? Understand, dear brother and sisters in Christ, just how blessed you are in Christ. Jesus told the disciples in verses 23 and 24, Blessed are the eyes which see the things ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. So here's the thing. Every generation comes with its pros and its cons. A generation ago in the United States, the church could feel very comfortable functioning in mainstream culture. So we could say, wow, they had it really good back then. They could function in mainstream culture. They were not constantly competing with culture the way the church is having to do today. And yet for all of that, we have blessings and advantages that the church of a generation ago could not even fathom. I am your pastor. I grew up in Colorado. I went to college in Florida. I was, I, I, I married a girl from Georgia and we ended up up here in Minnesota. That would not have happened just a short time ago in human history. We can get online and hear sermons from some of the best preachers that the world has to offer. That could not happen only a generation ago. Every generation has the tendency to see its strengths and its failures and to wish for more or less than what it has. But in the scheme of approximately 6,000 years of human history... Only the past 2,000 or so have known what it is to have the Holy Spirit indwell them and so grant them power over sin. Do you realize that? And of those 2,000 years, only perhaps 500 of them have seen mainstream acceptance of biblical Christianity to the extent that a man might be able to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience without severe consequences of martyrdom and destruction. And even of those 500 years... Only a couple hundred of them have seen access to the word of God to such a degree that literally almost anyone in society has number one, the literacy and number two, the ability to pick up a Bible and to read it. We are blessed. Peter wrote of this salvation which came through the cross of Christ in 1 Peter 1 verses 10 through 12. He says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you. By them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The prophets of the Old Testament search diligently to seek and to understand grace. They wondered what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was telling them these things were supposed to happen. 
So great were these truths, Peter tells us, that even the angels desired to look into them. And brothers and sisters in Christ, you have that Spirit of God inside of you. He's indwelling you. He has sealed you unto the day of redemption. You have access to resources unlike any church generation in history. I know it's not the easiest time to be a Christian, but you and I are so blessed. Jesus told the disciples that the things they have seen and the things they have heard were things that prophets and kings had desired to see. And these fishermen from Galilee were witnessing with their eyes what prophets and kings could only dream of. And you and I have heard those words too. Inspired by God and preserved in His Holy Word. You and I have seen the power of God. The power of the Spirit of God in us just as the disciples had and would continue. Do you understand how blessed you are not in yourself but in Christ alone? So that we can rightly apply these words to you and I. Christian, Blessed are your eyes and your ears which see and hear the things that you see and hear. For many prophets and kings have desired to see and hear the things that you have. Many prophets and kings have desired to have access to the resources that we take for granted. Are you taking advantage of the blessings you have in Christ? Are you in Christ? Are you living in the light of the blessings? Are you tapping into the promise of those blessings? Are you tapping into the power of God? Not so that you can rejoice in the power, but because you rejoice in the grace that can give you that power. Or are you taking them for granted, yielding the blessings which others have so longed for? The Christian life is an extension of God's grace. It is God's grace which provides the solution. It is God's grace with, which reaches out to you and offers it. It is God's grace which empowers the believer to be effective. And it is ours to trust and obey. It is ours to align with God's way through humility and faith. How are you doing this evening? Is there a seed of spiritual failure that has been planted because of your rejoicing in the power rather than the grace of God? It, it, is, is it that you are rejoicing simply that your name is written in the book of life? Or have you elevated to rejoicing in something else that could lead to failure? You've been committed to the knowledge of Christ. Are you a good steward of it? You've been blessed with so many spiritual blessings. Do you see it? Let's close in prayer.